Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast, the only show that dares to be both on-topic or on-premise and on-location or on-premises. Well, usually when it's not a global pandemic. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT luminaries to discuss a single concept. In this sponsored episode by Pure Storage, we're discussing Kubernetes storage, and specifically, we're questioning whether Kubernetes storage even needs storage, or if it's just about the data. Before we begin, let's meet our guests. Hey, Stephen, good to be here. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Michael Franti. Um, I'm Senior Director of Product Marketing at Portworks by Pure Storage, and really looking forward to, uh, to the discussion. I'm Adam Fisher. I'm a cloud and DevOps engineer with a head. I'm on Twitter at BonzoVT. Hey, everybody. This is Larry Smith. Um, I'm a kind of jack of all trades, DevOps engineer, automation, whatever. Get me into things. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Mr. L.E. Smith, JR. And I'm Stephen Foskett, uh, organizer of Tech Field Day and publisher of Gestalt IT. And you can find me on Twitter at S. Foskett. So as a storage guy, um, I've been watching the world of containerization and cloud applications with some level of trepidation, because frankly, it seems to me that applications are moving beyond what I would consider traditional storage. Essentially, um, you know, it, it all comes down to state and statefulness. And without state, you can't even have storage. Now, of course, applications need storage, um, but frankly, um, Cloud applications need something a little bit different. And Michael, you and I were talking about this earlier. I wonder if you can kind of set the stage by just explaining how do Kubernetes applications use storage or how do they store their data, which may be the better question. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and um, I think, yeah, let's let's start there definitionally because I think this conversation can go a lot of different directions. Because um, ultimately what we're saying is yes, you know, um, data services on Kubernetes, your databases, your streaming services, your big data, um, AI, ML, they all need storage, but you can't stop at storage. You really have to think about a data management strategy and what that means, and we'll get into that. Um, but when we talk about stateful applications on Kubernetes, um, what we mean is a, a container um, and the container itself is always stateless. It's just, it's a process. Even if it's a MongoDB container or a Postgres container, that container itself is immutable and it's stateless. Um, but a database, for instance, MongoDB, um, wants to write data and it wants that data to be available even after um, uh, the pod or the container fails or the host that's, um, that's running that container fails and wants to have that data available. And so that data is stored in a volume um, usually a block volume, uh, but in some cases it could be, you know, a file volume. Um, and that's what we mean by a stateful container. It's not the container itself that's stateful. Uh, it really is the volume and the ability to manage that container in an automated um, way via Kubernetes, uh, but in a way that allows that data to be um, accessed, um, moved, preserved, encrypted, all of the operational verbs that we're used to. Um, that's what we mean by by Kubernetes storage or, or um, um, uh, Kubernetes volume. So Michael, um, when you talk about uh, statefulness and things like that, when, when do you typically see when people are generally ready to, to dive in and say, I'm gonna 
deploy these Cassandra. I mean, we don't have to go, let's just use that as an example um, from, a, from an HA or clustering perspective and say, this is a good candidate for Kubernetes. This is a good a microservice that we can break down. You know, when you start talking about the data or the storage, like we're talking about, how do you get things like that replicated or can, you know, basically between data centers, if I have failover DR, you know, things like that, or do we really not care? You know, do we think of things like um, when we think of DR back in the days when we have, you know, active standby sites, things like that. But what about just the YAML file? What about how we defined our applications as that YAML file that we deploy as a manifest and just kind of go with, hey, it's here. Maybe I can go over here. Um, how do we get that data, you know, across different locations, data centers, cloud providers, whatever? Yeah, um, a lot of good questions there. So um, I'll, I'll take them a little bit in order. Um, so the first is when are people ready? In my experience, you know, people are ready to run their databases on, on Kubernetes when they experience the pain of not running their data services on Kubernetes, right? So, so um, you know, Larry, you're, you're a DevOps engineer, you've been on pager duty. Right, and when a microservice that you're responsible for running, like goes haywire in the middle of the night, and you have to fix it, like that's a really good time to think about how automation could actually make my life easier if I didn't have to wake up in order to uh, to fix that service. Um, so, when Docker really became popularized and developers started to use it on mass, and they realized that this is actually a great way to um, encapsulate and deploy my applications into container into my production environment, but now I need to manage all those containers. Hence, Kubernetes comes along. These were people that were operating applications, right? These were not the IT people that were just um, responsible for ops. They were DevOps engineers who were building, running, and then managing that application themselves. They were the ones who felt the pain, and they were the ones who first started to say, you know what? If I'm going to be responsible for running an application in production, then I'm going to use automation to make sure that I can um, uh, ease the application, the, the management burden on myself. Um, and Kubernetes is a great way to do that. Your your second point is, you know, well, if I've got a if I've got a YAML file, right? If I'm if I'm, you know, using best practices around infrastructure as code and um, you know declarative deployments then I've got a YAML file. Do I still have to think about like, you know, data protection and replicas and, and all of these things? Um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, the answer is yes, absolutely you do. Um, because a YAML file is just a text file. Are you going to tell me that because I have a text file that I can put that on some server somewhere and now like my users can, you know, access their shopping carts on my e-commerce site? No, that's, it's a laughable premise that just because I have a YAML file, my infrastructure behaves in any particular way. Now, the distinction that you know, we started the show with that I think is important is that likewise, just because you have storage doesn't mean that your, that your users can continue to access uh, their shopping cart online um, because storage isn't magical either. It's a combination of the declarative and um, automation framework that Kubernetes provides with storage systems that understand um, those primitives, understand those APIs, and together in the back end, um, transparent to the user, 
we can actually have a system that, while not magical, seems magical to, uh, to operators because when there is a failure, that application can be brought online um, uh, seamlessly and transparently. So that's a great comment about the operators uh, because, yeah, I mean, I can think of traditional applications and, and uh, traditional IT admins who typically your storage admins, your virtualization admins are the ones who are responsible for keeping an application up and running. But now you have this, this newer modern, modern architecture with different types of operators who are deploying applications, um, who are dealing with containers and clusters in, in a way maybe that uh, developers didn't necessarily do in the past. So um, these applications still do require on some level, some type of uh, disk or data to write to. So what do you see the, um, th that operational standpoint in, in these modern architectures? Who's going to be concerned about the storage? Because it has to be there on some level. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, the whole transition to DevOps is changing roles. Um, you know, who's responsible for infrastructure in a DevOps world? That's a great question. Is it, is it IT ops? Is it DevOps? Is it developers? You know, every, everything in life is a spectrum, right? Every, there are shades of gray in everything. Um, I, I, I think the, the big change with a move towards DevOps is that it, infrastructure serves a purpose. And the purpose of infrastructure is to allow us to run the applications that the business requires. Um, and so a DevOps team who's responsible for a microservice, right, the, you know, whatever, the shopping cart in, in my earlier example. It's not like that team also needs to be the, you know, procurement um, team for the on-prem data center or to manage all of the, you know, AWS instances, but they're kind of the business owner, if you will, of that microservice. And so they're, they're really responsible for advocating that the infrastructure is able to support the application requirements. Um, and what we're seeing is that that is increasingly, um, it's, um, kind of a, a partnership between traditional IT ops and DevOps engineers. It's, it's kind of no longer that IT ops has a menu of infrastructure and you pick from that menu and then you're just happy to have it. It's more, okay, let us understand what is it that you're trying to run? Okay, Kubernetes needs to work in this way. So you need you know VMs or storage of these attributes so you can your automation can work. We're starting to see that more and more where DevOps is not just a receiver of infrastructure, but an influencer um, on um, even infrastructure purchasing decisions. Um, that's certainly what we're seeing at Pure, Pure Storage and Portworx when we go into a customer um, and you know, we, we sell them Portworx, sometimes there's infrastructure um, uh, components that get brought along with that. Because um, ultimately infrastructure team, they don't, they're not as close to the business requirements um, and to the business units. The DevOps team is often closer there and can do a better job of describing the actual business needs um, than than IT can necessarily. So that's so, Michael. The, you know, I'm hearing a lot of good stuff. I mean, this all resonates pretty well. Um, Adam, you probably see it day in and day out. I see these things. You know, and one of the things that I think a lot of people are at least maybe struggle with from a from a let's go back to the DR or the backup. Okay, we've got data. You know, traditional traditional IT, VMs, things like that. We had data from a database perspective. Maybe we use some product to do data backup, retention, whatever, have it shipped off site, whatever, and be able to restore. 
Now, obviously we know how many companies really were successful at DR, but the reality is that it was there as long as you architected it. When we're talking about containers and we're talking about Kubernetes and we're talking about these different elements, how, how can I ensure, you know, it's, it's like Kubernetes, some people it's like a big black box, right? It's a thing, but what does it do? It's this, that, or the other. But from a data retention perspective, is there or how can you describe what it looks like from a container application from, again, using the Cassandra as an example. If I have the data, I have the bits, when I have a scenario where I need to go to another site, I'm going back to the same thing before, how do I make sure that those, those containers, when I spin them up and they're, you know, they're storage definitions and, and all that, that, have, that they're truly mapped correctly to what data needs to be present from a volume perspective? Yeah, yeah, great question. And uh, you know, your your initial um, question around kind of everything's a YAML file gives us the answer to this question. And that's one of the beauties of Kubernetes. I was I was having a conversation a couple of days ago where someone was talking about like when are customers ready to you know deploy stateful applications. And what I said is once they're comfortable with Kubernetes, the 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 shift to running stateful applications is actually very minor from a technology perspective. It's a very small jump. It's more, it's a bigger jump from a psychological perspective, um, because once you're used to running stateful stateless applications, you're you're used to um, you know defining your application requirements in YAML. Um, you have you know you're you're used to run using various Kubernetes objects like like operators and service accounts. Um, you're used to configuration. You have your deployments. You have your services. You have all of these, uh, all of this configuration. That's what defines how your app, what container image needs to run, what other services need to need to be available in in that requirement, what secrets files you might need to access this or that other service. Everything can communicate together. That's a big part of your application. When we talk about Cassandra, you need a couple of other things. You need the ability, when you take a backup of Cassandra, to make sure that it's application consistent. So if I've got a 10, um, 10 node Cassandra ring, I can't just like snap, 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 and then be able to recover that application um, uh, effectively. I actually need to kind of quiesce everything. I need to take my snapshot. I need to or quiesce everything, flush any um, kind of pending rights to disk, take my snapshot, unlock everything, and run node tool repair. That's how you take an application consistent snapshot on Cassandra. So you know, using something like Portworks, um, we do that for you. We understand the difference between Cassandra and Kafka. And so now I have an application consistent snapshot um, composed of multiple volumes. And my, my YAML files, that that describe my Cassandra application also describe those volumes. So when I put all of that as a single object into, um, say, S3 or um, you know, a flash blade running on-prem, and then I recover from it, I'm, I'm recovering the data, but I'm also recovering a self-describing application so that I know the container images, I know the configuration, I know the secrets files to make this application run. Um, and as you pointed out, Larry, it's like how many multi-million dollar DR projects, like just absolutely, like they were the best thing in the world until we actually needed it and it just didn't work. Um, with Kubernetes, it's super easy to test because, well, it's like, I just put my backups on an object store some, somewhere. All I need to do is spin up a Kubernetes cluster, pull down that backup and start it up. Does it work? It's very, very easy to test. 
Um, in fact, one of the, I would say, one of the big drivers for Portworx business is actually this data protection use case. People saying, you know, I really can't run an app in production unless I've got, you know, DR. So they'll, they'll bring us in, they'll test it, and it turns out to be really um, a big driver for our storage business um, because we're handling the data management aspects um, for, uh, for customers. Hopefully, hopefully that answers your question. No, it did, and, and, and that's, that's great because I heard another thing as you were talking is, you know, it sounds like, let's say I'm the lazy developer and I've deployed an application in my production Kubernetes cluster and didn't put in version control. I said, hey, my laptop, it's got the YAML files. I described, you know, my whole uh, deployment, all my applications deployed. I needed state, stateful data sets, things like that. I've deployed it. And guess what? My laptop just blew up. I didn't have a backup. What I think I heard is that something like Portworx could take basically from a backup scenario, if you will, to being able to recover in the off chance or possibly even re-describe what that deployment looks like, that something like Portworx could actually get the definitions from within Kubernetes itself, all of the constructs that were there and be able to recover that. Yeah, exactly. When we take, an, when we take what we call an application backup within Kubernetes, um, it's the data, of course, if it's a you know, database or queue or key value store, et cetera, uh, but it's also all of the configuration that describes the application. Um, and you know we're a big believer in GitOps. Like we we don't believe that you should have anything that is like configuration that's not stored in Git. Um, but <laughs> right, um, you know, the it's the world's not a perfect place, right? Not everybody is re uh, religious about every time you know I'm debugging something in production because hey, you know we're taking downtime. I fix it and I forget to check it back into my Git, and so now my production has diverged from my, um, my version control. And if I restore my application from version control, it may just bring me back to a state before I went through that debugging exercise. So we don't advocate not using version control. We advocate being realistic about, you know, if you've got a large development team, you're gonna have drift from your production uh, to your version control and being able to take a backup of what's actually running in production um, is really, really useful, not just from a data protection perspective, but also from like a cloning perspective, if I want to stand up a new version of the application for, for testing or something like that. Yeah, so so all this sounds really great. And certainly, I mean, with uh, modern applications and containers and everything, um, we know that the, the desired state is to get as close to stateless as possible. Um, but uh, there's a lot of organizations out there that are still running legacy applications that are talking about how do we move to this kind of architecture. And there's a lot of considerations, especially when it comes to cloud and, and multi-cloud and, and different services that offer storage and the ability to uh, run containers and where, where you have to think about things like latency and, and, and even storage performance for certain applications. So at what point, um, do you take these type of infrastructures and, and uh, still consider, okay, well, where am I running this application? How close does it have to be to where my data is? And, and do I need to even be concerned about storage policies underneath if, if there might be performance issues with my application? Um, yeah, so I would maybe um, just because, you know, and keep things lively, uh, I would, I, I would, 
maybe say one thing that you said early a little bit differently that the desired outcome is to keep things as close to stateless as possible. Um, I, the way I would say that is we want to keep things as well defined as possible um, so that we can manage our applications. I, the, the enterprises that, that we speak to don't have a goal to have things be stateless because if that were the case, then most of their applications um, couldn't run on Kubernetes. Um, and they're looking at Kubernetes as kind of a enterprise-wide platform to kind of actually implement digital transformation. Um, and that means you know they, they, they have database and they have to figure out how to run them on Kubernetes. Um, the, the second part of your question is kind of, well, you know, how does um, uh, to network topologies and infrastructure topologies impact which applications I run and where? Um, I think it's a really important consideration. Um, you know, we, we see customers really for the first time uh, being able to make pretty sophisticated placement decisions uh, between on-prem and cloud. Um, in order to manage those um, uh, those requirements. And sometimes it's about, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, one customer uh, that pops to mind would be Roblox. So they are um, large scale online gaming community, uh, mainly for kind of, you know, kind of tweens um, for it teaches coding, they play games. So they have a, over 150 million users. And what's really important for them is the gaming experience. And so they they've created a, um, uh, kind of a pop distribution scenario, point of presence, um, basically their own kind of gaming CDN, if you will. Um, and all of that's running in containers um, and Portworx is backing it in there. You know, it's, it's kind of, um, you know, we're providing storage in those, you know, their Ucolo facilities that are really, really close to their end users. You know, other customers are making decisions about, you know, I'm going to run on-prem and I'm going to do it um, on top of say a flash array because I need like really, really low latency access to storage. Whereas that's not Roblox's use case because you know, the, like the, the, the gaming um, experience, it's not, and it's not IO bound. It's like, just how close can I get to the, to the customer so that, you know, the, the back and forth um, of the gaming experience is not, it's not right. You're not writing data. Um, so I guess I would say, Customers are looking at the actual application requirements and they're balancing, you know, where does that app need to run in my own infrastructure? If so, on what type of, you know, on what type of infrastructure in the cloud, if, if the cloud, which cloud. Um, so, you know, Google has great um, DNS service, um, you know, Amazon has great, you know, natural language processing. And so sometimes those decisions are based not on performance per se, but ancillary services that are available in the different cloud providers. Um, and so, you know, I think ultimately that's a, that's a question that, you know, the customer works out with us as we figure out the architecture, but the good news is that there are lots of different choices. Hey, Michael, real quick, um, you know, do you guys see a lot and, and, and I feel like maybe this is going away from the, the is data the same as, as storage, but, you know, I'm thinking about this from, from the perspective of, I hear what you're saying, right? Um, maybe I'm a self-sufficient organization and I manage my own Kubernetes deployments on-prem and maybe I have pure storage and things like that, not to bring, but let's talk for what it is from a Portworx perspective um, with pure storage. And I've got a really good concept and grasp on how we manage that thing because it feels kind of natural, right? You know, when you start talking to customers and they start talking about cloud, you know, we're using Kubernetes 
they were using AKS or EKS or whatever. And you don't really think about these things, right? You don't really think about, hey, what does my storage look like underneath because I'm using a managed Kubernetes deployment? Do you have a, is there a challenge there from a customer perspective to get that understanding of, there's some value here that's overlooked from a Portworx perspective that I can put into a managed Kubernetes deployment? Or is there no value in that conversation at all? Um, I think I think I hear hear what you're saying, and um, let me play it back to you or give you an answer. And if I miss the mark, let me know. Um, that was so, a terrible you know, question. Right? Thirty to forty percent of our customers are running in the public cloud, um, and you know there's just as much value with Portworks in the public cloud as there is on prem, um, and it all comes back to the premise or the premises of this of this uh, podcast, which is like it's not about storage. It's about data management. And so, you know, if I'm running in the cloud, I have storage available to my Kubernetes cluster. It's EBS or it's Google Persistent Disk or what have you. If I'm running on-prem, I might have a flash array. I might have, you know, just some, some bare metal servers and just some, you know, SSDs in those. Storage is available everywhere. Just like if I have, if I have, um, you know, if I have Kubernetes, then I have compute. It may be an EC2 instance or maybe as a VMware VM, it's like compute is everywhere. But what problems does that solve, right? Compute itself solves very few problems for a Kubernetes deployment. Um, storage itself solves very few problems for a Kubernetes deployment. It's not the it's not the ability to persist data that is important. It's the ability to kind of manage that interest that storage infrastructure in a declarative way using using YAML files, for instance, or the ability to recover. An, an entire application, even though it's a distributed system um, composed of you know dozens of, of containers, you know hundreds of pieces of uh, configuration, that that's really the value that Portworks provides, and we provide that in a cloud environment just as easily as we provide it on-prem. Um, I think there is to your uh, your question, Larry, a perception that well, if I'm in the cloud, then I don't need I don't. I don't even, I, it's always struck me as a little bit odd because, you know, people, if, if I'm in the cloud, then I don't need compute. No, it's like that. It, it you still, in the cloud, you still need something to manage the compute. Um, and that's what Kubernetes does essentially. Um, in the cloud, you still need something to manage the storage. Um, and that's what Portworx does. So we see ourselves as kind of a layer that if you've got, you know, if, if you're investing in compute automation or application automation, then you need something that does the equivalent for, for your storage. And since Kubernetes itself doesn't provide that, um, it actually, it does it via um, mechanisms that it exposes for this purpose, like CSI, then you need something that fits in that, that layer. Um, I think the confusion might come from, you know, there, uh, Amazon EBS, as an example, has a native CSI driver. Um, but like anything in life, you know, you... You know, there's always multiple options, but not every option is equally um, uh, reliable or valid for a different, a particular use case. So I think that may be where some of the confusion comes in. I think this gets back to to one of the classic discussions in enterprise storage, and and you know, it, which is basically how how do you draw the line between storage and data? How do you draw the line? Um, you know, what is data? What is metadata? I mean, I, I could make a good argument that a YAML file in a Kubernetes environment is metadata, 
and that the um, what it's pointing to is data. But frankly, I could also make a good argument that it really is storage, that it really isn't data. Because in many cases, what the YAML file is talking about is uh, not elements of information, but in fact, collections of, frankly, storage. So, you know, back to the point here, you know, is this truly, I don't know if it matters or not, is this truly <laughs> data or is this just storage in a different shirt? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, um, you know, words matter. And because enterprise storage, and I, I don't know if my, you know, bosses um, are, are listening to this at pure storage, but, you know, because storage, there's a connotation. Um, and, you know, it's not always a good connotation, right, of like what it like your storage company, that's not, you know, that's not the company that you expect to fuel your business transformation. Um, it's not, that's not fair. It's not fair that we have that, um, uh, that perception of storage. Um, whereas data it's, it's very new. It's very modern. It's, you know, it's what drives my AI and my ML. And to the extent that we can pick a word, like, you know, have a Kubernetes data strategy versus a Kubernetes storage strategy. At the end of the day, Steven, I, I think you're right. It's like, we still need to think about the same things, but one puts us on a path to really driving business transformation and meeting the needs of the business, right? Data is gonna, what's gonna make us competitive. Storage isn't what's gonna make us competitive. You know, we need to offer services to our customers. Uh, we don't need to offer infrastructure to our customers. And I think data puts us more in that, in that path. Um, again, you know, sometimes life's not fair. You know, there's a perception of, of the industry being a certain way. Right. Rather than try to change that, let's talk about it in a different way and really talk to people about how they can enable the change that they're trying to drive. I mean, I think talking in terms of data gets us there more than talking about storage, even though, you know, at the fundamental level, yeah, it's there's some data that's been written to a disk somewhere. Yeah. And it's like the the old wags uh, tale, you know, the 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 cloud is just someone else's computer and serverless isn't really doesn't mean there's no servers involved. It just means that the servers are not a consequential element in and of themselves. So um, I think we need to wrap this discussion up, but I'm wondering if maybe I can get a reaction. Um, you know, let's get back to it. Does Kubernetes really just need data and not storage? Larry, why don't you go first? Well, I think, you know, we, we kind of went around a different angle a couple of times, you know, and, and coming at it from, you know, from the storage perspective, taking that traditional mindset. And I'm glad we kind of did bridge that gap, I think, towards the end back into the data conversation. And what I'm hearing, and I think Michael just summed it up as well, is that, you know, it is about the data. And I do think that going forward, the conversation should be around data versus storage. Because, you know, let's be real, Steven's a storage guy. He's been doing it a long time. A lot of older mindsets or, you know, kind of down in the weeds, think about storage from that perspective. They don't think about it in the, the way that we're talking about from a data perspective, I think. No offense, Stephen. <laughs> None taken, maybe, Larry. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, Kubernetes needs data and not storage is, is a fair premise. Um, but I don't think that 
that means storage is going to go away. I just think that Kubernetes is really shifting who cares about storage and operationally what we're going to do with it and, and, and how we do that. So, I mean, I think certainly serving uh, data to customers is, is the most important business value, but that data has to reside somewhere. Yeah. And what I would say is, you know, storage is becoming more important as we have more data because it needs to be stored somewhere, but, but that doesn't, just because we have storage doesn't mean we're solving the business problem that that Kubernetes allows us to um, to tackle. So if we stop at storage, if we if all we do is create a way to provision a volume via Kubernetes the way that we were able to provision a volume via, for, um, from OpenStack, right? If that's all we do to enable new types of applications to run on, on Kubernetes, then as an industry, we failed because that's not gonna enable us to you know, implement you know, 5G technologies um, to implement, you know, AI and ML. All of that is really about your data strategy and the infrastructure is just a means to an end. So they yeah, pure at Poreworks, that's really what we're driving with our customers is what are you trying to achieve with 5G? What are you trying to achieve with machine learning? And let us work with you to just enable that, not just give you a box and then say, you know, have at it. Like you're, that, that only gets you part of the way. We want to bring our customer all the way to the outcome that they're trying to drive. And that's that's really about data, not storage. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, this is one of the key uh, questions these days, uh, especially in this sort of data-driven world that we live in now. I mean, frankly, um, you know, you could be forgiven for saying that applications today really are only about data and, and manipulating data and processing data. And that is really what we're doing now in the cloud. So it's not really cloud computing, it's actually cloud data. And that anything that makes that work is basically the key to the future of applications. So I really well, appreciate uh, this conversation. Um, we do have to wrap up now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us, Michael, from Pure Storage and Portworks uh, on this edition of the uh, On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast. Uh, those of you listening, if you enjoyed this discussion, remember to subscribe, rate, and review the show in iTunes. Uh, that really does help every podcast's uh, uh, visibility and uh, success. Um, and please do uh, share this show with your friends. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage from across the enterprise. For show notes and more episodes, go to gestaltit.com slash podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.